Gautam Rishi has explained ashram as choice, as vikalp. So what does that mean? That you can choose at the cusp of your adulthood to do any of these four things. What are these four things? To stay as a brahmachari, that means stay in the education sector. To join Grihastashram and pick up whichever occupation you uh, are going to pick up and live a normal life as a weaver, as a soldier, as a merchant, as whatever you are. Otherwise, retreat from society and live in a forest and study or just meditate or whatever. Otherwise, you just give up society completely and become a sannyasi. This is important. Now, why is it important? Because the choice of these different ashrams was available not just to men, but also to women. The spy system, there were two kinds of spies. One was Sanstha and one was Sanchara. So Sanstha was the headquarters and Sanchara were the roving spies. These roving spies were mostly and very often women. And they were women dressed as ascetics. They were women, parivrajikas, which means a kind of bhikshuni, a kind of female ascetic. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that uh, we have established a dialogue and that there is some kind of continuing interest because, you know, this is micro history. This is not really like uh, the larger way in which we look at it, this dynasty and then this dynasty. We are looking at micro details of how a nation is actually envisaged, how a nation is thought of. And then I'm giving you examples from specifics so that this is in effect becoming a snapshot of the Mauryan kingdom. So the theory is from the Arthashastra, from Kautilya, from the Saptang state. Remember, we are looking at the third ang of the Saptang state. And uh, we are going into a lot of detail because this is the land and the people. So last time I spoke to you about the geography. I spoke to you about some aspects of what people ate, where they lived, roti, kapda or makan, how they traveled, some public spaces, theater, etc. And today we are going to concentrate on the position of women. Then we are going to look at the caste system. That is the Varn Ashram Devastha, if I am to give it its actual name. Caste system is a Portuguese appellation and we will discuss that too. The problems with calling anything the caste system, did, did it really exist or something made up by people? What existed was the Varnajati Devastha, the Varn Ashram system. How did it become the caste system? And uh, you may have some ideas about how caste operated in the past. I will be very happy to tell you that almost all your ideas will be wrong. Portelia had a very different view of organizing society from what we think the ancient past was. So, uh, okay, we are going to talk about women, caste. Then we will also talk about temples and religion. The focus will be on temples. What happens when we look at modern India is that it is seen as somehow exclusively Buddhist. Because of the Emperor Ashok Maurya, it is seen as exclusively Buddhist. However, it was a very vibrant Vedic Sanatandhan civilization which existed in the subcontinent. And I am going to focus on that. So, uh, 
let us start with i'll also give you a little taste of the art sciences language and literature at a very tiny one you'll have to go to the web series to look at everything because you know these subjects are vast and it's extremely difficult to go into any kind of details for this now if we want to look at the position of women how do we start and what is the format in which we try to understand it so i am going to start with a particular hymn this is the shri suktam from the rigveda like i told you society in the indic past was organized based on the vedatrayam there was absolutely no doubt about the fact i keep mentioning to you that the root of this is in the rigveda and the root of that is in the rigveda i have been saying that consistently in the same way to understand the position of women we have to understand what did the basic tenets of this civilizational mode think about women so the first exposition of femininity in our own tradition comes from the shri suktam the shri suktam is from the 10th mandal of the rigveda and i am going to actually sing just a little bit of it for you and then i will also uh, tell you the meaning ಹಿರಣ್ಯಂದೇಯಂಶ್ವಶಾ ಅಶ್ವಪೂರ್ವಾಮೃತಮಧ್ಯಾಂಸ್ತಿಂಬೋಧಿಶ್ರೀಮೇಲ್ಬೋಟೀಸ್ goddeshree is the essential feminine from her comes she is golden effulgent beautiful everything beautiful gold silver comes from her she is the one who gives you prosperity she is the one who gives you all the material things in life you know gamashvam purushanaham this means prosperity cattle servants etc ashvapurvam rathamadhyam what does that mean she also gives you success in war hastinad prabodhinam she is the one in the middle of the war with elephants with horses she is the one who gives you victory in war she is the warrior goddess so if you read the entire shri suktam the description is of a positive strong female figure who is the one controlling all of creation now you know very well that we have different gods and goddesses and there are different purans and different ways of worshiping all of them so all those who keep, who worship devi they think of devi as the one who creates the universe the one who controls the universe and this is the idea of femininity there is a masculine idea of the creator of the universe there is also a feminine idea of the creator of the universe and that is shri 
now almost all the later ideas of the goddesses that we worship of the forces that we worship all come from this hymn whether it be the worship of goddess lakshmi whether it be the worship of goddess saraswati and you know the worship of durga the worship of shakti so the seeds of all of those are found in this shri suktam now why do i why did i recite it for you and why did i tell you this i told you this to give you the idea of women which existed in the minds of the people who established the vedic civilization so they had this very very grand effulgent strong idea the idea of shakti the idea of prosperity the idea of a mother all those ideas were there in the shri suktam you do know and you do remember that we think of our motherland as the body of sati you know the story of sati and shiv so sati had self immolated in her father's yagya when her father had insulted lord shiv and after that shiv had wandered the world with the body of sati on his shoulder and parts of her body had fallen all across our country so today there are those 51 shakti peeps where different parts of sati's body had fallen what does it mean that we think of our motherland of our country we envisage it as a mother we envisage it as a female figure think of the strength of the characterization of the feminine principle in the vedic ideas and in the puranic ideas of lord that is why i start with the shri suktam to give you a kind of base but this talk is not about babies this talk is about women who dwell on earth and do earthly things there is something which is larger than us that is our those are our religious ideas but what about the women who lived on earth who lived in the indic sub indian subcontinent and who spent their lives here were they the same as devis what was their position now the normal understanding of ancient india and i'm sure you're correct if i'm wrong is that you know women were secondary citizens that they were not given their due they were not treated properly there is a you know that whole theory of patriarchy that whole theory of the intersectionality of caste and patriarchy which made women and gave women a terrible terrible life is that true is that what we can glean from everything that we read in the texts the remains that we find the inscriptions that we find the stories that we have is it true so i will give you some specifics of the modern period and you can try and see whether it is true or not before that let me also start with the framework in which i will understand it so many of you most of you would have been in the read most of your academic theories or even journalistic articles using the leftist marxist framework of understanding now what is the marxist framework i mean it's a complicated thing but mainly the marxist theory is one of conflict it sets everything in the framework of conflict between different groups that is the basic thrust of this theory in the area of marxist feminism therefore there become two groups men 
and women. And they are perpetually in conflict with each other. It's a zero-sum game. So if this one gains, this one loses, this one gains, this one loses. So there has to be a fight. Is that the way our civilization looked at women? No. It was not and it is not the way our civilization looked at women. What is the framework then that I am going to use? I always like to use indigenous frameworks, our own emic ideas rather than etic ideas, our own emic ideas about what we are, how we understand ourselves. So what framework will we use? We will use the Varn Ashram Dharm framework. The Varn part of it, I'm going to talk about in the next section. What about the ashram part of it? So I'm going to look at it. Think of Varn as a kind of job specialization for the purpose of this part of the talk. Just think of it as a kind of job specialization and the occupations that people had. And what about ashram? The normal understanding of the ashram system is that it was a chronological thing. So a child was born, it became a student, that is Brahmachari, then grew up a little more, finished his studies. And I will talk about this his a little later. Finished his studies and then went to becoming a Grihas. And after the Grihas ashram went on and a little more time passed, they went to Vanpras, which is they went into the forest. And final was sannyas when they just gave up everything. They gave up this mortal world. This must be familiar to most of you, I assume. This, these four ashrams must be familiar to all of you. But is this the only way of understanding ashram? No. There are alternative ways of understanding ashrams. One is chronology. The other is choice. So are these four different ways of spending your life? So there are some of our, you know, that our Dharm Shastras have been written by many different rishis. And uh, uh, there is no one Dharm Shastra which is applicable to everyone. It is region specific. It is community specific. And there are different rishis whose tenets different people follow. So there is Gautam Rishi who has a Dharm Shastra. And Gautam Rishi, has explained ashram as choice, as vikalp. So what does that mean? That you can choose at the cusp of your adulthood to do any of these four things. What are these four things? To stay as a brahmachari, that means stay in the education sector. To join Grihastha ashram and pick up whichever occupation you are going to pick up and live a normal life as a weaver, as a soldier, as a merchant, as whatever you are. Otherwise, so retreat from society and live in a forest and study or just meditate or whatever. Otherwise, you just give up society completely and become a sannyasi. This is important. Now, why is it important? Because the choice of these different ashrams was available not just to men, but also to women. So you see that the idea that women had no agency they had no choice. They had only one thing to do, which is that grow, I mean, uh, be born, grow up, get married, be somebody's wife, be somebody's mother, die. That's the way we uh, kind of understand women. But that was not the way the position of women has been envisaged in our Shastras, nor is it the way we find that people have actually led their lives. When we look back to the stories of women from the past, and by the way, I am writing a book on this, The Modern Women of Ancient India. 
so there were women who did all these kind of things they had four choices they could stay in the education sector they could become grihast and uh, you know be wives and mothers and i'm going to talk about the grihast ashram which will give you a slightly different view of grihasti than the one you have or they could also become sanyasis or they could be they could become wandering ascetics now this is the framework i want you to think about this is the framework in which i am going to set everything let's go back to ancient india let's go back to a nation a nation that we are trying to understand and a nation that we are trying to think about what is the position of women so what was it that anyone in this society wanted how could they realize themselves how could they be valued members of society isn't that what the idea is that women should be valued members of society so what were the sources of power and prestige in the society one was of course physical prowess another one given that this was india was knowledge and education then another one was a right to perform certain rituals that is the right to perform yagyas then children then of course you have economic power so these were the different kind of sources of prestige now did women have access to all these sources of prestige or not that is the question then only can you decide whether women had a good position bad position what kind of position during that time now uh, let us look at as far as physical strength is concerned i will just stop at saying that physical education vyayam and exercise was important for everyone in the entire society i don't have time to talk about it but uh, my next episode on uh, youtube model of going to be on the 64 arts and vyayam was one of the 64 arts that everyone should learn and had to learn not just in the list of 64 arts but in our own expositions of ayurveda and medicine exercise physical prowess has been given a very big role as far as being warriors is concerned there are examples of warrior queens from the past kekai things to mind immediately and there are also there is also some textual evidence to show that women used to make small weapons small daggers arrows etc and also use them so that was one part of it now what about education education was in gurukuls and there is again evidence to show from these this is uh, textual evidence as well as evidence from the purans that there were gurukuls for women as well as for men for boys as well as for girls i will uh, invite you to read one recension of the yajurveda where there is a long description of what should you do when a child is born and education of the child whether it be a girl child or a boy child is seen as absolutely necessary they tell you that even if you have to go into debt you must educate your child so there was um, you know this whole scope of going to the gurukul let me give you evidence of the women who were called brahmavadinis so what who were they they stayed uh, celibate and they spent their life teaching and learning who were the very um, famous ones from the rigveda we have loka mudra a loka mudra was a rishi in her own right she even ran a gurukul in her own right for a very long time till she fell in love with agastya rishi and uh, the story of the romance of agastya rishi and loka mudra is interesting in and of itself it's very interesting and uh, you can read it in my book so loka mudra is a very uh, old example of a brahmavadini then you have sulabha who appears in the mahabharat 
I have mentioned Sulabha before as one of the people who has given an exposition of the Saptanga state. So Sulabha, who was a, a wandering ascetic, she was uh, a contemporary of Raja Janak, and there is a long description of her Shastra between the two, which will tell you the situation and status of the intellectual prowess of women. Then, of course, you know, uh, you have uh, Yamge Valkyar's wife, and then you have Gargi, who had an argument with uh, Yamge Valkyar. There are many examples of Brahmavadanis, which is to just bolster up the evidence for the educational rights of women. Now, women were also, you know, the Janev, the Yagyu Pabit. That was a symbol of entering into the state of education. Now, we have the Dharmashastras. These Dharmashastras tell us that girls as well as boys were entitled to the Yagyu Pabitam. And I will uh, tell you that even that much revived book, the Manusmriti, also explains that women are entitled to the Yagyu Pabitam and they are entitled to education. So before next time somebody wants to burn the Manusriti, you please ask them to read it. Before they start burning it and they start saying that it's a very, very uh, traditional book which has all kinds of negative things about women. It would be a good idea to actually read what they write. Then you have uh, economic activity. Now I'm going to consider economic activity along with the other important thing I want to talk about, which is Grihasthashram. I told you that there are four ashrams. However, many dharma gurus and dharma shastra writers are of the opinion that three of the ashrams mean nothing. It is only grihastha ashram which means anything. Therefore, they call it ayakashramya. Why? Because it is only grihastha ashram which contributes to society. The rest of the ashrams take from society. The ascetic, the wandering ascetic, the brahmachari, they have to be maintained by society. They, they go and ask for bhiksha. Bhiksha has to be given. Gurukuls have to be established. Teachers have to be paid. What do grihasts do? They create surplus. They work. They create surplus. And remember, in ancient society, the home, the grihasti, was the pivot of economic activity. We did not live in a post-industrial revolution society where there is a schism between the home and the workplace. And the culture of the home and the workplace is completely different. The home has been devalued. The workplace has been upvalued. And it is as if grihasti is something to be avoided. Marriage, children, grihasti, domesticity has been devalued. This is part of the second wave of the feminists. Anyone who has read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique will understand where this is coming from. A certain thing about certain American suburban women was made into a book. That book became popular. That book became amazingly popular. And you have people following the tenets of the feminine mystique and its various other followers. After Betty Friedan, there have been a number of people who have written about this. And there has been a wholesale devaluation of domesticity. Today, what do we say? That a woman is stuck at home looking after children and cooking. These are bad words. These are terrible words. Nobody wants to be stuck at home, only cooking and looking after your family. That is, that work has no value. This was not what the ancient past was about. The Drihasti was the center of economic activity because say whatever the activity was, most of it was agriculture, obviously carried out at home. Then they look at things like weaving or pottery or any of the things that, uh, or traders, 
all this was done as a family again resource distribution was also done in the family what money is to be used where what money is to be spent what money is to be given for charity what is to be given to gurukuls all this was decided within the grihasthi and by the grihapatni so there was a grihapati and there was a grihapatni and together the grihapati and the grihapatni ran their family and that was a little microcosm of the entire society and of the entire economy so the grihapatni the grihasthin was a very important woman there is a little episode from the koshitaki upanishad which is worth thinking of right now so there is a uh, grihapatni who is doing her morning work when an ascetic walks by and asks her for alms now she is busy doing some household work so she doesn't come so he starts scolding her why are you ignoring me what is this i am very important so she comes out and says don't scold me and don't shout at me do you think i am like a, that little bird who you burnt with your anger in the morning so in the morning this ascetic who was a very angry man for some reason he had become angry with the bird who had been pecking at him and he looked at the bird and the bird shriveled up because of the tapas that he had because of the power that he had so she told him don't think i am like that little bird i am a grihasthin i am a grihapatni i have a lot of work to do when i have time i will consider you and i will give you some diksha but i am not one to be shriveled by you so don't try to scare me so what does this tell you one the tapas of this woman was far more than that of this so called ascetic not only did she know what he had done in the morning she rebuked him for his impatience she rebuked him for the way he was disturbing her because she was doing something important so the tap shakti the tapas of a woman who was practicing grihasthi was as much it was as much a way of obtaining moksha as this person who was spending his entire day looking at asceticism and here again i'll tell you just a little bit of a thing i also run or supervise a research program in which a lot of researchers work so there is a an academician from uh, she works in california who is writing a book on stree dharm as a path to moksha irrespective of your gender so stree dharm is a set of duties and a set of activities which is not connected to being a stree it is called a stree dharm it is called as stree dharm and stree dharm is an independent way of achieving moksha so all this is confusing for us and all this is difficult to understand for us because we live in this world which devalues domesticity which devalues all the actions which take place inside the home the home is a trap it's only outside which is good in ancient india the home was not a trap the grihasthi was the microcosm the pivot of everything that happened in the entire society and economy so grihasthashram was very important and why do i discuss grihasthashram and why do i say all this because in the entirety of society most people opted for grihasthashram there were only a very few you know there was a small section which opted for either being in the brahmachari brahmavadini sector and those who became ascetics and those who became sanyasis obviously very few because if everyone were to renounce society then society would be dead there would be no way of actually you know um, carrying on society 
it was grihasti which carried on all the activities of society and because of which society was replicated so this is something which uh, we must keep in mind when we think of ancient india and we must remember the difference in grihastashram and domesticity and the, the choices made by women most of those choices did turn out to be marriage grihasti and children but that was not a trap or something which was revived or something which was looked down upon again those women who did not want to do this had choice they had choices in front of them and they exercised those choices now that i'm talking about choice just a little bit on uh, sexual freedom so what you know today we live in a world in or in an indian situation which is so badly influenced by victorian morality and islamic morality that they have completely forgotten what is the hindu idea of sexual freedom and what is the hindu idea of sex as choice or sex as activity or as pleasure they have completely forgotten it there are attitudes of shame secrecy doubt humiliation all kinds of negative things attached with sex such was not the case in the past we are the land of the kam sutra but please not the kind of kam sutra which you see in those coffee table books it is the manual for how a person a nagrik should actually live their lives and it has a lot about your your entire life how you relate with others including sex and including all kinds of other things it also tells you you know what kind of clothes to wear how to talk to people etc etc all those things by the way importantly one of the books of the kam sutra was actually uh, commissioned by the ganikas of patliputra now i will come to ganikas a little later so as far as sexual freedom is concerned shringaras was the sum and substance of uh, sexual freedom of that time women had choice and there was no coercion and there was no humiliation secrecy etc associated with sexual choices and sexual choices of the heterosexual or homosexual nature everything everything is there in the kam sutra so uh, you have the kam sutra and i told you that book 7 was actually commissioned by the ganikas of patliputra so now i will come to ganikas so uh, ganikas are today thought of as the english word prostitutes however they were not prostitutes because prostitutes sell sex and they are neither very rich nor important nor very respected members of society today so ganika is not equal to prostitute what is ganika equal to who was a ganika and this has a very specific modern connotation and i am going to um, talk more about this so a ganika was the most beautiful the most talented the most educated and learned among women so there were some girls who were picked up when they were young because they were exceptional and they were trained to be ganikas now what did a ganika do she was an expert in all the 64 arts she was an expert in studying the vedatrai she would be an expert in the vedang and she could be either established she could have established herself as a very big woman in her own city in her own country she could also act as a diplomat or as a spy 
for the kingdom during the modern during modern times i told you that chanakya ran a very elaborate and very complicated and uh, powerful spy system so ganikas were one of the basic features one of the basic people who were used as spies during modern times and of course read the urnavi series the protagonist is a ganika and uh, she was used to further the political and diplomatic ends of the kingdom so she could also be called a diplomat at large she was also a very powerful and very uh, respected member of society so even within her own society or, or town she could actually control and influence politics culture society she was one of the leaders of society now what is there about ganikas in uh, the arthashastra and what else what other remains from the moreans do we find to explain or give evidence for all these things about ganikas um by the way i would really suggest that any of you who are interested in ganikas also uh, read about amrapali to read uh, the book by acharya chatursen amrapali i told you the story of vaishali and magadh last time so amrapali was the pivot around which this whole story revolved the story of magadh and vaishali of monarchy and gantantra so she is the ganika par excellence there is you know also a little uh, sculpture of her and uh, uh, also she was she became a nun and she started writing poetry so you can today read poetry written by amrapali she was a ganika par excellence again you can read all this in my book so uh, i was telling you about evidence from the modern period so let's go back to the arthashastra the arthashastra has a little has a few shlokas on ganikas so who should they be what should they be like what should they be paid so they were they are described about what how they should look and what they should wear and what kind of official seals and official insignia they should carry because ganikas were the close companions of the king he was to be surrounded by them one would hold the chauri one would hold perhaps a water jar one would hold a perfume or incense bearing uh, something to spread perfume around the most important example that we have today is the is called the didarganj yakshi erroneously in my opinion it is the didarganj ganika because if you look at the shloka in the arthashastra describing that and you look at the didarganj yakshi figure there are a lot of um, similarities then there are also certain other terracotta figures of the singing and dancing ganikas which surround the king other terracotta figures have also been found so in sum who were the ganikas they were women who made their own sexual choices and they were away from grihasthi they were away from the ashram system you see they were one of the exceptions they were not part of the ashram system because neither were they brahmacharinis nor were they ascetics nor were they grihasthis they were different so therefore ganikas are a they you know it's kind of they operated at the margins in in the middle of between grihasthi and brahmachari between grihasthi and ascetics between diplomacy and the common people so they had a very special role to play now were there prostitutes in the past yes 
So all the women who sold sex were not ganikas. There were ganikas, the the say you know class A or grade one were called ganikas, and there were others. What we were today called prostitutes were called rope jivikas. So they just sold their body. They were not the ones that I am describing as ganikas. They were their position was not that good, and they were kind of you know, but. i would also uh, you know there were a lot of rules and regulations about the, how they are to be treated because there was a special minister for courtesans in chanakya's time so there were special rules and regulations about how they should be treated so this is uh, as far as ganikas are concerned now what about the specifics of the politics of the modern day were women important in politics i have told you about ganikas other than that there was an inner council remember the mantrinos of the king that i told you about and do you remember that the queen mother and the queen were part of that council so they were the ones who would advise the swami or the king on all the political issues and all the administrative issues which came up so this was their uh, uh, political role which was not a negligible one by any chance then i have told you about uh, the spy system the spy system there were two kinds of spies one was sanstha and one was sanchara so sanstha was the headquarters and sanchara were the roving spies these roving spies were mostly and very often women and they were women dressed as ascetics they were women parivrajikas which means a kind of uh, bhikshuni a kind of uh, female ascetic then uh, there were also you know cooks dasis agricultural laborers maids any profession you can think of women fitted into each and every household very easily so it was very very easy to use women for spying and acharya chanakya has written about this in the section on spies and from what we know of different plays etc for example mudda rakshas of shudra which is about uh, the ascension of chandragupta to the throne that has in great detail the role played by spies and the role played by ganikas both ganikas as well as spies in fact i think of urnabhi as a kind of modern day sequel to mudra rakshas so do try and read a translation of mudra rakshas you'll find it very entertaining you know that the mauryan state was not a it was a very practical and sometimes very cold blooded kind of state so what did it do it also picked up orphans who had no parents and brought them up just to be spies so they were taught a lot of the shastras which were needed including secret language secret ways of communication secret ways of fighting all these things so they were like absolutely brought up to be spies you know there is a parallel in the in the modern in the modern day world during the french revolution post the french revolution when france was going through all its various terrors so many of the children who had become orphans because of the french revolution were similarly picked up and trained to be spies and sent all across europe to act in the interests of the french state so you know all uh, people who run states and nations have the same kind of ideas i think we must not forget as far as politics and power is concerned that uh, antarvanshika was always a woman remember she was the king's guard who controlled access to the king so obviously she was a very very politically important person so far for politics i have talked to you about economics in the grihasthi economics as far as uh, different activities are concerned if you read the stories 
plays, etc. around that period, you get a sense of the way women operated and of what they did. So there were also, you know, merchants' wives who kind of acted as merchants themselves or shopkeepers. And other than that, all the different economic activities, women took full part in it because of the way the Grihasti was structured and because of the way was, uh, Grihasti was uh, the economic pivot of that period. What are the other things I would like to tell you as far as women are concerned? Because I think I'll bring this to an end now. There was provision for remarriage. There was provision for divorce by mutual consent. Yes, indeed. I'm not making it up. There were there were certain provisions, and uh, but uh, Cortelia says that you know the husband and the wife just can't get along, then perhaps it is better for them to separate. Then there was also um, oh, you could own property as uh, widows could own property. There were also laws of inheritance, and certain things passed from mother to daughter, mother to son. There was something called sridhan, which consisted of jewelry as well as household effects, and those belonged only to the woman. And they went from mother to daughter to mother to daughter. It was only along the female line. So in the criminal code, because there's a chapter on Dharmastiyam, there are there's a long list of offenses against women, including uh, sexual coercion and sexual harassment, what we would call today, and there is punishment for that. Very important thing that Chanakya also writes about, the consent, the sexual consent of women. So they were not to be coerced if they did not consent to uh, um, whatever any man was proposing, they were not to be coerced in any way. And there was stringent punishment for this. So we think of consent as something very modern that we have come up with. You will be able to find it in the Arthashastra. Now, this is not to say that everything that is written in the Arthashastra about women is something we are going to agree with. No. Because, you know, uh, for example, he says that you should not uh, abuse uh, your wife or you should not beat her up. You can slap her once. Now, this is not something that any of us is going to be comfortable with. So let's not uh, get carried away and think that, oh, it was this, uh, we can just pick up the Arthashastra and apply it today. We can't. There is a great deal of it, which makes a lot of sense. But it's not as if we can pick up everything. We have to be careful and we have to read everything and see what applies to us. The general principles are applicable. Some of the specifics we may not be comfortable with. So this is a kind of you know nuanced picture of women, which we get when we look at different sources of evidence and when we look at it with our own eyes, not with the eyes of Karl Marx or not with the eyes of Betty Friedan. So I am now going to start with the caste system. For that, I am going to share. Have um, all of you would have heard of the Purush Sukta? So the Purush Sukta is seen to be so say very knowledgeable people. It is the source of the exploitative caste system which was developed by ancient India. And in it, you can see all of the terrible things that caste proposes to do and the terrible ways in which caste assesses people and finds them wanting unless they are born in the right caste. So it is seen as the source code for the exploitative caste system. Let us start with reading what does the Purush Sukh say. So I'll give you a few 
shlok from that. I'll show you a few shlok from that. And what I will try to explain is that the Purush Sukta is about creation. Sahasra Shisha Purusha Sahasraksha Sahasra Patsa Bhunim Vishvato Vritva Atya Tishtha Dashangulam. The cosmic Purush with countless heads, eyes and feet pervades the earth in its entirety and extends to infinity. So this is the understanding of the cosmos as a Purush. This is how it begins. This is all about creation. Now I will show you a few others so that you get an idea of and I will show you of course the notorious shlok. From this Purush were born horses, bees, cattle, goat, sheep, etc. That means everything was created using the metaphor of the body of the cosmic Purush. Whether it be horses or good. And remember, they will be talking about the things they find important. Let's take it to mean that all flora and fauna came from this Purush. What else came from this Purush? Ah, so this is the notorious one. See, this is the one which you will find lots of Marxists quoting all the time. To show how bad the Purush suit is. From his mouth came the Brahmins. From his shoulders, the Kshatriyas. From his thighs, the Vaishyas. And from his feet, the Shudras. Brahmano asse mukhamasit bahu rajanya pritah uru tadasya yadvashyaha padabhyam shudro ajayata. This is the notorious shlok from the Purush Sut, which is said to be, as I said, the source code of all the exploitative ideas of the caste system. Just keep this in mind, okay? Keep this shloka in mind while I give you a little bit of a background of how the caste system came into being, not Varnashram Dharma. Because Varnashram Dharma is there in each and every one of our treatises. The Shastra in book one starts with this. What is the king supposed to do? He is supposed to uphold the Varnashram Dharma. He is supposed to uphold the Varn system. And the Varn system is a certain division and certain occupational division of society. How did this Varn Ashram Dharma become the caste system of the Portuguese? Is an interesting thought and we just take a little bit of time to talk about it. Now, if you read sociology, Indian sociology is full of just the caste system. It is, I've done two years of it and we spent one and a half years just studying caste in the Delhi School of Economics. Nothing more. So what do we study? We study the caste system. We do not study the Varnjati Vyavastha. And the caste system has certain specific characteristics. What are these? One is endogamy. One is hierarchy. One is birth. Then there is a fixed occupation. And there is a, you know, Brahmins at the top. Then you have the Kshatriya, Vaishya, Chudra. And the top exploits everyone else and sucks out everything from everyone else. And they are like, you know, maybe queen bees doing nothing but uh, taking advantage of everything that the worker bees do and treating the worker bees very badly. So this is what is the understanding. I'll repeat, birth, endogamy, hierarchy, fixed occupations. These are the characteristics of caste. Now, this whole Varna system with Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, Shudra is the way it is supposed to operate. This is the theory. This is the structure. Does it actually operate like this on the ground? 
no one no researcher no person has actually been able to fit the numerous jatis and the numerous different communities that we have in india into very easily into this these four slots for example if you take any particular caste say in kashmir let you take that caste and try to understand it in kerala or try to understand it in maharashtra their relative positions are different so it is accepted by all people who study caste properly that this four this list of four hierarchical uh, varnas does not actually operate on the ground it is just something which is given as a kind of theory and what are the problems of this theory why has this four varna system become so important and why do we always try to fit everything into this so we have to just look at a little bit of the history of the study of caste so when the portuguese came to india they saw uh, the organization of society and they used their own word casta which means color to explain the varna jati system now casta or color and the way in which portuguese society operated did not have anything much to do with the varna jati vyavastha but the word stuck and why did the word stick now i will recommend one book to you um you know some of these books which are now being written by certain theorists and uh, uh, people who are rethinking the caste system have yet to really catch on in the mainstream but one theorist is s bal gangadhar notice him and he has written a lot of books uh the hidden in his kingdom you can just google him he's, all his books are there and he writes on this subject he also has a very erudite set of people working with him and for him and they have also written a lot of books so one of them is called the western foundations of the caste system by prakash shah etc i would suggest that any one of you who is really interested in this should read this book because here they tell you that the understanding of the caste system as we know it today as with all these rigidities and these four fixed ideas exploitation etc is more to do with the way christian people use the old testament and the things which were there in that structure to understand indian society so they thought of in the, in the old testament there are a number of tribes and those tribes are bound together by you know uh, the old tribes are bound together by a certain hierarchical system and a certain group who are called the levites at the top so when they came to india they thought okay this is like the old testament see all these different tribes and instead of the levites they chose the brahmins so a lot of the things which you will see in the theory is done by brahmins or uh, is uh, supposed to be a characteristic of the brahmin is not actually so in real life the christian understanding of hindu society influenced all theorists i will mention one name here who is very important his name is louis dumont he wrote a book called homo hierarchicus in the 60s he wrote this book for french people he wanted to show that french people are all about liberté égalité fraternité and they believe in homo equals he wanted to show that in contrast here is this country india where they don't believe in equality that doesn't mean anything to them they only believe in hierarchy and rigidity so therefore the name of the book homo hierarchicus the indian person is homo hierarchicus par excellence because they only think of hierarchy 
The French person is homo equalis par excellence because they only think about equality. Now, this was what he wanted to do. He started with this perception. And when he started with this perception, he made up a whole edifice of theory that this is how rigidity is there, these are the characteristics, etc., etc. He did not have enough evidence to bolster up his statements. If you read his book, he admits as much at the end that this is a structure that I have given, but I don't have enough evidence. There are a lot of gaps in the evidence. So I'm assuming it to be true because I think that this is how ancient society operated. So this must all be true. Please, you know, kind of ignore the gaps in my evidence or maybe we'll find evidence later. Now, the fact that Homo hierarchicus and the caste system in its rigidity and these four characteristics was not proven by Louis Dumont has been forgotten. That there were gaps in evidence has been forgotten. And Louis Dumont has become the presiding deity of understanding the caste system in terms of these characteristics and in terms of these rigidities. Most of what you read today about caste is drawn from Louis Dumont. He has been an all-pervasive and I would, I would say a very distorting influence on the study of caste, on the theoretical study of caste. And once the Marxists entered and once their conflict theory entered, read S. Bal Gangadhar and S. Bal Gangadhar and his group of other theorists have done a great job on this. Now, we, what do we want to do now? I've given you a little bit of a theory of the caste system. And now we want to know what was it like during modern times? Was everything like Dumont said or were things a little different? This is the description of the Varnashram system as it is there in the Arthashastra. So this is the duty of the Brahmin, then the duty of the Kshatriya. This is from book one. Svadharmo Brahmanasya Adhyayan Adhyayanam Adhyapanam Yajanam Yadanam Danam Pratigraha Chak. Kshatriyasya Adhyayanam. Note this. Study is also there for Kshatriyas. Yajanam, yajanam Danam, which means performing yajyas and giving uh, charity, giving and receiving gifts. Shastra Ajivo, they have to live by uh, their prowess, their prowess as warriors. They live by the profession of arms and protecting all beings. This is for Brahmins and Kshatriyas. Let's look at the others. And here, I want you to remember the Purush Sutta. And I'll tell you why I want you to remember the Purush Sutta. The special duties of the Vaishya studying, performing yagya for self, giving gifts, agriculture, cattle rearing, and trade. So, this is for Vaishya. This is all from the Arthashastra. So, this is the description of society as it existed then. Shudrasya, Dvijati, Shushusha, Vata, Karu, Kushilavakarma, Chak. So, service here. It, 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 it can also be seen as being part of the service sector. We have a service sector today and people are very proud to belong to it. But uh, when you read the Purush Sukta, then they are not happy with it. Now, what is Varta? Varta is nothing but uh, agriculture, cattle rearing and trade again. So this is what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to engage in the economic calling. And now look at this Karu Kushilav Karma. What does Karu Kushilav Karma mean? Karu Kushilav Karma means Karu means doer. So what, what could they do? There were things like poetry, art, science, architecture, artisans, mechanics, 
all this was in the realm of the shudra part of society then what is kushila kushila means a bard or a minstrel or a newsmonger actor herald so what is this the creative arts these are the creative arts so what were the shudras they were the karus or the doers of society now we go back to the purush sutra what did it say that the brahmins came from the mouth and uh, the vaishyas came from the thighs and the shudras came from the feet so what do the feet do they make us walk they are the ones who make us they who make us do things so that karu kushilav and appearing from the feet of the cosmic purush the shudras were the ones who made society work who made society move talking of the system of you know say it's a very common charge against ancient india that uh, shudras were not allowed education now that again is not true one because you know let's just go back to our two uh, epics ramayana and mahabharat who wrote the ramayana valmiki was he a brahmin no who wrote the mahabharat vedvyas was he a brahmin no so the underpinning the pillars on which indic society rests these works are not by brahmins these are by what would be called the shudra section of society both valmiki and um, also vedvyas look at the modern period who was chandragupta maurya was he a kshatriya no most probably according to most evidence he was a shepherd he was a shudra and he was his worth was seen by chanakya and he was brought up to be a king then look at his uh, senapati pushyamitra sung that family the sungas were seniors of senapatis of the mauryans and were they kshatriyas no they were brahmins so examples like this are galore only if you want to look at them if you want to say that everything was exploited x y z then you know this is what you are going to get the point being that there was a huge profusion of different japis then and now and those could not be fitted into the kind of very rigid hierarchical exploitative structure that is being uh, peddled today as the caste system some of the japis who have been mentioned in the arthashastra tantu vairi rajuka washaman tanvay tailor suvarnakar goldsmith kuttak carpenter tarmar smith charmakar leather worker etc these were different japis endogamy was a general rule but exogamy existed and why did exogamy exist not only in the arthashastra but in all adharm shastras there are reams and reams about what happens when a kshatriya marries a brahmin if a shudra marries a brahmin if a brahmin marries a vaishya what is the result so how can there be only endogamy if so many rules are there about exogamy it's obvious but this kind of basic common sense is not there in many of our academicians a caste was normally hereditary but there is no shastrik injunction for caste to be according to birth please note this and please do not forget this not only the arthashastra but also the manusmriti caste is not equal to birth in general it was so because such was society that people followed whatever their father did or mother did but this there was no shastrik injunction for it to be so the shastras do not say that you have to be born in a brahmin family or a shudra family or whatever family to be of that varna or in a particular jati to be of that jati so this is something that you must remember 
There were also, apart from these four varnas that I have explained, there were also chandals. Then there were artviks. Artviks were uh, those who lived in the forest. So, quick thing, there is nothing called Adivasi. There is no word for Adivasi in our own Shastras. The word is Artvik, that is forest dwellers. Other than that, there were Mlech, those who were not part of your kingdom, but outsiders. And there were Bahiriks who were gypsies. Important last word. In the, during the Mauryan period, the army consisted of troops and soldiers from all varnas. So, this was also a falsity to say that there was only a Kshatriya army. Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas and Shudras were all part of the army. So, the picture that I have painted for you here is very, very different from the kind of picture that is tried to be painted of the castes. And now I have a special section for all the people who are here. Welcome, Gitali. Gitali Tare is the illustrator. Gitali is a bureaucrat. She is a financial advisor. But that's not the hat she is wearing today. Today, she is an artist. Today, she is a photographer. Today, she is a creative person. And uh, so, welcome, Gitali. So, when we started this whole venture project last year and we discussed your illustrations, how did you approach the whole issue, Gitali? My first uh, feeling was of uh, trepidation. No, uh, actually just pure fear because uh, we are talking about one of the most prosperous and uh, rich in terms of not just uh, economically but culturally in every sense an era which was so very rich, so very prosperous. And... and uh, there is not much to go by. I mean, okay, you did give me a lot of material to read and all, but mm, uh, the the first feeling was that uh, one, this is our aesthetic. I do uh, much as I love world art. I want my country's art to be represented through my eyes, my Indian eyes, and my own understanding is very much uh, fed by the art. Starting from the caves or caves of Bhimbeka, I'm from Madhya Pradesh, so obviously uh, that is one of the earliest art I have seen. Um, there is, of course, Ajinta and Elora, and there is Sanchi. I mean, I'm sorry, I will keep talking to Madhya Pradesh, but I'm from there, so I know that I have, I've seen a lot of uh, art from there. And uh, oddly enough, so much of it is from the era about which on which uh, Sumedha is an expert. So uh, the idea was to approach um, the illustration of Morello through Indian, the Indian perspective. And uh, the idea was to not overwhelm with a lot of details because it's very easy to over embellish any illustration, but to start small, clear and direct. Our problem was that there is no really authentic illustration. There's nothing which I can copy. If I want Italian art, I can copy something. If I want Roman art, I can copy something. But mm -hmm. if you want Mauryan aesthetic, where do you go? So this was our search for authenticity. This was our search for representing it as it must have been. And not the aesthetics that, we, that are of today. And we somehow project to the past. So how did I start discussing with Gitali? So we went back to texts. We went back to inscriptions, we went to sculpture, we went to paintings. And Gitali, do you have our friend Vita? 
I don't have my friend Dita with me right now. But when we began, it was with this book. Yes. So this is a book. And what is his full name? My friend Dita's full name, Gitali. Dita Schlinglof. Dita Schlinglof is a German. He's a German who has made his life study the paintings, line drawings of the paintings of Ajanta and Ilora. Now you know that the paintings of Ajanta, sorry, not Ilora, are the oldest that we have. And some of them go back to the second century. You know, there are certain cases, case number 10, for example, has been dated to the second century before the common era, which is the Sunda period. Most of the Ajanta paintings are much later, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century, after, I mean, uh, during the common era. But there are some parts which are old and which belong to the end of the modern Sunda era. So we thought we could start with good old data. There's also the fact that, you know, um, uh, I'm not accusing anybody of a bias, but definitely in the period that we are looking at, there is a heavy slant towards describing the Buddhist, uh, uh, you know, the Buddhist way of life, their deities and their uh, ways of worship. I don't have a problem with that. I love it. It has... It is a part of our civilization. But uh, there are there were so many other things. There were so many other ways, other beliefs um, of which we know nothing, the Ajivikas, of course, the Hindus. So uh, there was definitely a bit of a problem in terms of sourcing material. Luckily, uh, Sumedha, I think we were able to find some great books, not books of art, but books which were referring to the social, cultural and religious life, which was very helpful and um, I do hope we have not taken too much of an artistic license. I really do hope that because uh, I would not like us to sort of stray from uh, too much from verity um, in that respect. And uh, um, But yeah, it was so much fun. And uh, uh, the best part, I think, was um, drawing the flora uh, <laughs> of that era. If you look at the whole series of illustrations, there is... I mean, her favorites are trees and they are there everywhere. The good thing and the important thing is that during the Mauryan era and during the ancient past, we did live very closely with nature. So this tree craziness or this plant craziness works out because that's how we used to live. It's not like today's apartment houses where, put a, where we put a sketch of a tree. All these were very much part of our daily lives and it was part of the houses, part of the temples, etc. So our search for authenticity took us here and there and everywhere. Gitali, would you like to give a couple of examples of the most complex things that we did? The representation of Ramayana. And um, I uh, really love... Language and literature. So at that that time, the Itihas Quran tradition was very important. So I, I wanted to illustrate for Itihas, Mahabharat and Ramayana. So Gitali has chosen one episode from the Aranya Kand, obviously because Aranya, lot of trees, so it has to choose it. So uh, Tree Crazy Gitali chose the Aranya Kand and uh, you will see it when I release uh, episode 10. Uh, then she, yes, go but, ahead. Uh, but uh, the, the, the beauty of Aranya Kand is that uh, I think they talk about something like a hundred trees and hundred birds and hundreds of animals and you know i'm i'm really surprised because i uh, i hadn't read the book and sumedha sent me the original and i read it and i read the translation and then you know how it is you go down a rabbit hole and the description of the trees and the landscapes is so magical i strongly recommend that everybody should read it because you are just the the, the sheer poetry 
beautiful beautiful and um, one other thing which i really enjoyed sumedha was um, drawing the ashrams the, the various stage you were just talking about the purusha how we research ashrams so we know that there were ashrams and gurukuls but if you want to represent one what did they look like what were the buildings what were the trees what were the plants what were the water sources etc so then i also consulted some very uh, knowledgeable sanskrit knowing friends of mine they sent me some description so we started from reading not just the ramayana and the mahabharat we also read bhas because bhas is the playwright of the moderns and in one of his plays which is called swapnavasvadatta there is a description of an ashram one of my favorite discussions which we had was on the natya shastra if you read bharat muni's description of how a theater should be uh, i think we have come pretty close to representing you know the nepatya so uh, there is another one you know there is going to be an episode on yuddha on you know durgandand so we have also recreated old fighting weapons Oh my God, that was that was great. And we had discussions with current uh, people in the army. Vitali's father retired from the army, so we discussed it with him. We discussed it with others. We read descriptions in various commentaries of what those actual things would have looked like, and we managed to recreate two. I think Vitali was it three, two or three of those ancient fighting weapons, and that has been a so satisfying and absolutely wonderful venture. you have to uh, see it from your aesthetic it cannot be a roman aesthetic it cannot be a greek aesthetic it has to be an indian aesthetic because this is our art and this is how we have kind of done things and uh, uh, we have uh, i mean this is how people have uh, these are our ancestors i i really consider the masters of ajanta as my ancestors because i feel that you know uh, i what i see today is i see it through their eyes and i would like everybody to see it that way because you know it's i mean you know everybody leonardo da vinci and uh, monet and uh, they were brilliant artists but please these nameless men and women i think uh, we we really do need to bow to them and to the yeah, talking of da vinci remember when we were trying to illustrate the purush soup we tried to look for the representation of a male figure done the indic way and we didn't find it yeah there is yeah. a very famous you know a man like this sketch by da vinci the purush soup is not that man you would have noticed the purush soup is an indian man it's an indian representation and preceding and, and the, the uh, square and the circle of art that book we took a lot of stuff from that the square and the circle of art the next season of uh, bharat kirti will probably be on another maybe the cholas or the guptas or some other of the dynasties how are you making any plans is there any efforts or any advocacy to get some of these points at least you know few identified points in past or anything else that you you deem fit into our education into our curriculum at least for 10th standard or 12th standard level you know mainly at least for 10th standard i, I always mean because uh, you know after 10th standard people don't study all the subjects right they take up whichever stream they want to students but at least till like a high school level is there any effort is anyone doing anything is anyone thinking about it i am concerned i was contacted by uh, the head of iccr 
Mr. Sastrabhu. Yes. He is also the head of a committee which is going into the changes to be done to various textbooks. Okay. So we had uh, in January a long conversation and well, I told him the same things that I had been speaking about and he was very much struck by all this. So he did take my inputs and he said he would put it in front of the committee. So when the committee which is looking at the changes to be done in the textbooks comes out, perhaps you will see something. I'm not very optimistic because there is a consensus needed, which consensus does not exist at the moment. Yeah. But as I said, these certain official things have started and unofficially, like I told you, I teach classes on the Arthashastra to children. Yeah. So I have taught one set of children, starting another set of children in July. So these are small children from 9 to 18 years of age. So this is something which I hope will, you know, uh, multiply. We need people like us, like you to push this. Like I keep saying, you know, this is a democracy. If people want something, it will happen sooner or later. I think there are small little, little, little plants, green leaves, green shoots. It's not a tree yet. Let's see. But you see, Deepanjali, there is a very big problem. The big problem is mm. that our education is in the framework of Western epistemology. Now, there, I'm, just because you are all still here, I want to show you something. And I will show you something. This is the epistemology that should be used for India. But can you even recognize it? Just take a look at it. Do you, you recognize this? No. This is Indic epistemology. This is Vedic epistemology. And apart from this, there are, this is the, the Chaturdash Vidyasthanam, which is the Indic system of epistemology. Other than that is, uh, if you add four more to this, then they become 18 Vidyasthans. 18. And those 18 Vidyasthans are the framework which could and should be used to teach. Look at this. You saw those 14? You yeah. add Itihas, Puran, Dharma Shastra, yeah. If you add all these, this gives you a framework for the Indic way of learning and knowledge. But how can we use this? From the beginning to the end, from the needle to the mountaintop, everything is in the Western epistemological tradition. Also, let us not be hasty and say we want to throw out everything. No, there are useful things and there are things to learn from and to you know kind of mix. In the Western tradition, also, what we have done is just thrown out the Indic tradition. That is the problem. A kind of melange is needed. Again, like I think I've told you, this is something that I am doing at my end. I am trying to mix Western and Indic epistemology and come up with a model that can be used. And let's see, I'm optimistic. Maybe five, ten years later, we will have something like that. Prime Minister's speech regarding defense issues 10 days ago. For the first time, there was a mention of indigenous military tactics of Cotillier and international relations according to Cotillier. Because, you know, in our system, we learn about a lot of these uh, Western European tourists. We even learn about Sun Tzu. Hmm. Do not learn about Cotillier. It's difficult to understand, but such was the thinking, but now it's changing. 
so well guarded optimism cautious optimism but we are so deep rooted in western epistemology i don't think it's possible to uproot it and throw it out some kind of mixture has to be uh, devised you know like we need a mixture between ayurveda and allopathy whatever works okay. there and we need to have a good system of putting it together uh, what is it that we can do to help i mean you're doing so much what is it that people like us can do you know how can we uh, read this content disseminate this content make this content popular talk to people about it yes and uh, you know uh, read about it yourself because uh, we are you know i am like just somebody who shows you yeah these are the things you can read so you can go back and read and you will step into a beautiful new world so i think popularizing and disseminating this content is very important but we want a lot of people to watch morello i don't think so many people do they were not head of uh, the state or like king or uh... i i uh, i uh, assume although this is not written anywhere i assume it was a question of physical power because okay. the king at the time had to be someone who could actually beat and kill anyone who came to attack him mm-hmm. so i uh, suspect that it was a question of brute power however having said this it is not as if they have been no queens It is not as if uh, they have not been heads of state. Have you heard of Queen Vidya? Have you heard of Ahilya uh, Bai Holkar? Have you heard of so many of our queens and you know those who were also ruling together with their husbands? Say, look at the queens of the Chola dynasty. Look at Semya Mahadevi. Her husband died very early, so she became a widow. But she was a part behind the throne for at least seventy years. Because she died at the ripe old age of hundred, and what is it that Sambia Mahadevi did not do? Nothing in each and every political, economic, social, cultural sphere. And uh, if you start looking at uh, example, look at Rudramma Devi, the Kakatiya queen. Have you heard of all these queens? Yeah, yeah, that is it. Queens were not there; they were fewer in number, and there is no specific reason written down that there shall not be any queen, etc. There is no shastric injunction. i suspect it was a matter of brute force and what was the formal age for education like formal education started so uh, you were supposed to start your education at the age of 5 or 6 mm-hmm. you would be sent away to the and the exact age of education differs from place to place community to community if you read the dharma shastras there are specific shlokas on start your education at this day this time when your age is this at this time have the yagyopavitam ceremony and then send them off to the gurukul the education lasted either for 12 years or for 16 years as time passed by and maybe a thousand years went by and the corpus of knowledge increased the number of years needed to master that knowledge started increasing more and more and more so from 12 to 16 to 20 to 32 so then certain changes were introduced as to how much to study and what to do because then if you remain a brahmachari till you are 32 37 then what happens to society so uh, rohit i would recommend that you read a book by as altekar okay sure on the women of india it is a little dated but it's an excellent starting point to give you all these details as altekar you will find it on the net i mean you will find a pdf it's the most interesting book to read and it will answer a lot of these questions of yours and also do you suggest like everyone should learn sanskrit of course have i not 
held forth on that. Yeah. If I haven't, I'm sorry, I should. Everyone learns Sanskrit. Without knowing Sanskrit, there is no study of ancient India. Yeah. And all women wear a sari. And who were managing the temples? The king were managing the temple? Or That's about episode 9 again. For the Mauryans, in short, there was a Devta Adhyakshi. So he was kind of like a government official who used to look over all the um, temples and see what is needed. But the temples were run by their own uh, you know, gurus and by the, own, by the people who had established those temples. So the government was not in control of the temples, but there was an official to help. Because the temples were like little corporate bodies. They were economic and religious and social and cultural centers. And they were run in extremely professional and extremely in an extremely streamlined way. Is there is there a quota for any all the ashrams, like say to balance in the society, all the four ashrams, there were a quota like only this many people can become this, this, oh, that's this? An excellent question, Rohit. Because the question that is bothering you and uh, bothered the Dharma Shastra givers also. What if everyone becomes an ascetic? What if everyone remains a Brahmachari? So, normal human predilection was for Grihastashram. So, normally society went on in an even kind of way with most people becoming Grihastins. But what if people who were in the Grihastashram suddenly wanted to go to some other ashram? So there were rules. One, you were not allowed to toggle between ashrams. That today I am in Grihastha ashram, then I become a sannyasi, then I come back. Sorry, this was not allowed. Toggling, not allowed. However, if you wanted to change your ashram, there was a set of complicated rules. There were people from whom you had to take permission. If you were a Grihastha and you said, okay, now I want to become a sannyasi. You had to ask your wife. And if your wife said, no, you can't go. And the Mauryans being Mauryans, they also had some state permissions because they kept an eye on the composition of society. So it was not a quota. There was no quota system. But the state kept an eye on what was happening and strongly discouraged too many people from becoming ascetics. So there were a set of very stiff and tough conditions which had to be followed if you wanted to go from Grihas through ascetics. And look at the modern state, which is always very cunning. Suppose you were an ascetic and you wanted to become a Grihastha again. You are not allowed to do it. But if you agreed to become a spy for the modern state, then they would allow you to do it. Because then they used you as a spy. So this question was very much thought of and very much at top of the mind for people who were running society. And they kept an eye on all these things and had rules and regulations for these.